Welcome, everyone, to FF Plus, a spoiler-free outlet for movie reviews, entertainment recommendations, discussion, and interviews. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for this very special episode is my co-host and best friend, Patrick. We are extremely excited today to be speaking with the screenwriter of the iconic franchise, Back to the Future, Mr. Bob Gale. For the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future, Universal is bringing back the films in the Ultimate Trilogy for the first time ever in 4K Ultra HD on October 20th, just in time to celebrate Back to the Future Day on October the 21st. The collection will have over an hour of brand new content, some of it still not seen after all of these years, including a sneak peek at the new musical show and audition footage from young stars like Ben Stiller, Billy Zane, and Kira Sedgwick. It's a great set. We can attest to that. And we had a great time being able to sit down and speak with Mr. Bob Gale. Here is that interview for you now. Hope you enjoy. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. This is a, kind of a special moment for us. Big fans of the trilogy. So we're excited to kind of pick your brain here for 30 minutes or so. Okay, thank you. Patrick's going to get us started. And I guess we'll just go from there. Well, what kicked us off was that 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. And it's crazy to think that this is 35 years and it's still just as timeless to use the word there. What do you think has made the property itself so popular with fans desperately wanting this new set? And dare we say it, why it's so timeless? I think that what Back to the Future taps into is a very human thing that touches all people, all cultures, all times. And that, and it's this. At a certain point when you're, I don't know, eight, nine years old, you suddenly understand that your parents once were children. Up until then, you know, when you're in kindergarten, first grade, your parents are these godlike figures, right? They never age. They know everything. They are the source authority for all knowledge and then you finally start to put it together wait a minute you know they, they do mention when when i was your age and you don't understand that until finally you do and then you get a little bit older and you start thinking about sex and you ask yourself the question how did i get here my parents did that what did they do on their first date and you know, some of it you kind of want to know, some of it maybe you don't, <laughs> but it is something I think that every human being thinks about, and it's what we capture in Back to the Future, that moment when Marty sees George being picked on in the cafe by young Biff, and he realizes this is where my father came from, this is why my father is who he is, this tells me an awful lot about me. And then what he learns about his mother, of course, this is all really powerful human stuff. And yes, we love all the bells and whistles with the DeLorean and time travel and all, and Doc Brown and all the gadgetry and stuff. But what I think makes people keep coming back to these movies is the humanity of them. Plus, the story has a very good message that we have some control over our own destiny. I think people inherently know that, but 
it's good to be reminded of certain things every once in a while. And you see this uh, drama teams. So that to me is why people keep watching Back to the Future. Somebody else asked me about this. I said, well, you know, think about Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a play that has been around, you know, for over 400 years. It still works. You know, Baz Luhrmann did that fantastic version of it in the 90s. Zeffirelli's version in the 70s uh, is fantastic. Why does that work? Well, because everybody's had the experience of their parents saying, I don't want you going out with that person. Uh, and that's at the heart of what Romeo and Juliet's all about. Everybody can identify with it, even if you don't understand all the dialogue, even if you don't understand all the cultural references. It's a great human story. And the stories that last are the great human stories. That's awesome. I love hearing you say that because that's exactly what resonates with us about the trilogy as well. We like to cover movies that make us feel. And so that's part of what we love. But we also love the time travel stuff. And so well, sure. I, <laughs> <Who doesn't? laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that. So there's one of these new special features on this upcoming uh, 4K set that's coming out. This ultimate trilogy is a video about the science of the movie. And it's sort of trying to prove the plausibility or implausibility of some of the time travel stuff right. and the things that happen. I wondered for you, when you were writing this specifically, like how much attention did you pay to trying to make the film quote unquote realistic? And if you did, why or why not? Well, Bob Zemeckis and I like movies that are larger than life. So we were, you know, we were writing this, you know, with big, fat, broad markers, you know, not fine point pens, if you will. So, and the characters are, of course, larger than life. I mean, Doc Brown is, he, he is on a certain level, almost a cartoon character, if you will. But at the same time, we wanted to create rules for how all this stuff worked that we would not violate, that the audience could buy into. We'll say, okay, time travel requires 1.21 gigawatts and 88 miles per hour. Uh, and if you don't have those two things, time travel is not going to happen. And we never violate that rule. So does it make sense? I don't know if it really makes sense. I mean, Machio Kaiku said that if you were going to time travel, you would need a whole lot of electrical energy, a whole lot of power to, to do it. Is 1.21 gigawatts enough? I don't know, but we have our characters say it, our characters believe it, and that's the rules. And the audience goes, the audience is fine with that. That's okay. So those are the type of things that Bob and I would always do in our movies, set things up, tell the audience what the rules are, and never violate the rules. So if the car isn't quite getting up to 88 miles an hour, you're going to be worried. Uh-oh. And if we had made the car travel through time at 85 miles an hour, you'd have been pissed off because you would say, hey, you're not supposed to do that. I, I have a little bone to pick with Christopher Nolan in Inception. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Well, no, <laughs> you know, through the whole movie, they're saying you can never go down to level four. You can never go down to level four. And, and then they, they yeah. say, oh, you know, yeah, actually, you can't go down to level four. Well, no, you can't go down to level four. <laughs> Why did you tell us that? You know, you brought up the car, right? And and this is something that also I found in these special features that was fascinating, something I didn't know. When you are giving a tour of a museum, awesome 
uh, special feature. It's got lots of props and movie memorabilia, and you're explaining some of the places they came from. One of the things that gets mentioned is that it wasn't always a car in Back to the Future. What was the original time machine going to be, and how is that going to work? Well, the original time machine was a time chamber that was built out of an old refrigerator. And the rule was that Doc had built this. The, the first draft was dated 1981, and the story took place in 1982. And Marty travels back in time 30 years to 1952. And Doc Brown had invented the time machine in 1952. He just didn't know how he could generate enough power. He needed this device called a power converter that needed some missing chemical element to make it work, which turns out in the movie to be Coca-Cola, the secret formula which no, no one really knows. But the rule was that you could only travel through time to where the time machine already existed. So the furthest back in time Marty could travel was 1952 when Doc had originally built the time machine. And it was nuclear powered, so they actually had to literally take the time chamber and bring it to a nuclear test site uh, in 1952 where they were testing an A-bomb. Uh, A-bomb was going to go off. They were going to harness the nuclear energy. And that was what was going to send Marty uh, in this refrigerator back to 1982. So that was how it worked. Doc had to carry this thing around in the back of a pickup truck. And when we finally got the movie into pre-production, Bob Zemeckis was thinking about, how am I going to shoot all this stuff? He came to the office one morning and he said, hey, Bob, there's an awful lot of loop logistics that we got to do to put this put this uh, refrigerator on the back of this pickup truck, take it off of this pickup truck, move it around. Wouldn't Doc have been smart enough to build the time machine into a car so that it was completely mobile? I said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And he said, and what if it was a DeLorean? Because John DeLorean, this is August 1984, John DeLorean was on trial for, you know, the, the setup that the government did on him that he was using cocaine to uh, finance his car company. So we thought, okay, if we have a DeLorean that makes the car uh, more dangerous and notorious, plus those cool golden doors, it led to the joke with the farm family thinking that it was a spaceship and the rest. That's very cool. When the 30th anniversary came out, I had the chance to see the trilogy with my brother in the theaters again. I remember Back to the Future was the first movie I remember seeing in the theaters as a kid. So it's very iconic for me. And I remember thinking, man, I love part two so much. And then watching it five years ago, I realized how great the first one was. I mean, the second and third are good. But I wondered when you guys were originally crafting the story, was there a trilogy in mind from the beginning or was the first movie so popular that it sort of spun off the second and third? Yeah, the, the, the second thing you said. We did not have any idea that, that there would be more Back to the Future. We had a hard enough time getting Back to the Future made. You know, we were just hoping that people would show up at the theater to see it. So, no, we weren't thinking about a sequel at all. As Bob Zemeckis had said many times, if we knew we were going to do a sequel, we would have never had Jennifer get in the car at the end because when it came time for us to write the sequel, we spent days and days and days. What are we going to do about Jennifer? What are we going to do? She's not a very well-drawn character. There's really not much for her to do. She 
kind of interrupts the the the, the, the Doc and Marty uh, camaraderie here, and so we ended up having to just uh, knock her out. She's unconscious for, for most of the movie. Yeah, so no, we had no idea that the first movie would be phenomenal that it was, much less that we would be able to do uh, another one or two movies. And there were definitely some casting changes. Obviously, Jennifer, uh, the, the actor, actors changed from the first to the second and third. I also know that from history, Michael J. Fox was not originally cast as, or he was cast, but couldn't make it because of family ties. How did the casting changes, not only through like the try of the auditions, but also through some of those actor changes, how did that affect the way in which you wrote the trilogy as a whole? Well, the most important casting change was Michael J. Fox uh, replacing Eric Stoltz. As, as you said, we wanted it. We wanted Michael from the very beginning, and the producer family ties said, you know, he would love to do this. I know because it's a great script. I'm not even going to let him read it because he'll help. He'll hate me for telling him that he can't do this movie, Michael. Uh, and we understood that. You know, okay, he's committed to this other show. That, that you know, that's that's the way it works in children. But we were in such dire straits after putting five weeks of footage together with Eric and feeling that the comedy wasn't working, that we all decided we've got a problem here. We showed the footage to Steven Spielberg. He agreed with us, Frank Marsh and Patty Kennedy as well. And Steven wisely counseled us. He said, look, you can't go to the studio and tell them that you want to replace the actor and then start casting over again. You have to go to the studio and say, we want to replace the actor, and here's who we're going to replace him. And so the first call that we made was back to Gary David Goldberg, producer family ties. We told him the situation we were in. And by this time, it was much, much later in the schedule of family ties. He said, okay, well, we've got only six or eight weeks left. If you guys are willing to shoot your schedule around family ties, and Michael is willing to work that way, I'll say yes. And Michael read the script, loved it. He said, okay, I'm not going to get any sleep, but I'm only 22 years old. What, do I, what the hell do I need sleep for? And uh, then we went back to Universal and we said, hey, uh, this is what we want to do. Here's the footage. We don't think this is as funny as it ought to be. And we've got the guy from the hottest television show who will be in this movie. And with everybody uh, on the proof, uh, the, the director and all the producers ganging up on the studio, Sid Scheinberg, the CEO of MCA, he relented and he said, okay, you guys are crazy, but I go ahead and do it. And uh, I don't know that anything like that has ever been done. Certainly it was never done before and I don't think it's ever been done since. Yeah, it's it's a crazy way that it came about. It's just a perfect storm. It all works out. Um, and that's yeah, honestly... I know. I know. It's the irony is that had we not cast Eric Stoltz, we would have never gotten Michael J. Michael Fox. J. Fox. I mean, no, yeah. so, so you know, add that up in your uh, in your planetary conjunction. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> One of the special features uh, is actually interesting about casting because we get to see some auditions, and I won't give it away here on the podcast because we want people to check these out. But you get to see some auditions from actors who are very recognizable for yeah. parts in the movie that they ended up not playing. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to see those. And I don't want to raise anybody's false hopes. These are very, very brief snippets of the auditions. So you're not going to see, you know, a two minute, a two minute audition uh, of somebody. You're only going to see 
you know, 20 or 30 seconds, and then on to the next, on to the next. But it does give you a good idea of, uh, uh, of what people did in. And we're very grateful to everybody that consented to, uh, allowing, uh, allowing their, these old auditions to be part of our, part of our, uh, in a day and age where every major hit movie seems to be milked to death and it's a franchise or a universe or bust at this point, why has there not been a continuation of the Back to the Future past its tr initial trilogy? Because we don't want to do it. <laughs> we felt like the trilogy is perfect the way it is, or as Bob Zemeckis would say, it's perfect enough. And... We didn't have another story to tell with these characters. We felt like we had told the story of these characters as well as we could. Uh, and there's no further place to go. And if we were to continue with it, it would just kind of be a pale imitation of what we'd already done. And we didn't want to do that. We thought, okay, we did it right. Let's move on. Let's make some other movies. And, uh, let's, let's leave well enough alone here. So. That's why. <laughs> Beyond the Back to the Future trilogy, I've had a chance to read the IDW comic book run of the of the same name, and it's really, really good. Thank were you. these stories part of a wish list of stories that you were toying with when you and uh, Robert Zemeckis were making the trilogy, or did they come along afterwards, not as a way to continue the Back to the Future trilogy, but to kind of spin off into kind of a tribute to the these characters and the adventures that they were on? Well, the, actually the, the Telltale video game from 2011, that was, that was an idea for uh, the Back to the Future sequel that we didn't do to have our characters go back to the roaring twenties because uh, Bob and I always wanted to do a gangster movie. We were not able to make it really work as well as we wanted it to as a Back to the Future movie. So put that aside. And when uh, Telltale said we want to make a, Video game, I said, okay, let's do the, let's do the Roaring Twenties thing. So when we, when IDW said we're going to do this, we want to do this comic book series, the first uh, four or five issues, they're called Untold, Untold Tales of Back to the Future, uh, and alternate timelines. And those first few issues answer questions that the fans had always wanted to know. How did Marty and Doc meet? How did Doc's house burn down? Uh, did George and Lorraine remember Marty? What happened when Doc first came to the future? So we answered all those questions and the series proved to be so popular that IDW said so we want to turn this into a regular series. And I was very fortunate to have uh, the collaborative partner, uh, John Barber, terrific writer and quickly understood the Back to the Future universe and what made it work. And so we said, working together, we said, okay, let's explore some of these nooks and crannies. Does Marty remember his old life or not? We answer that one. Um, how did Doc build the time train? The whole entire series kind of covers that whole thing. And then we did this great, wonderful spin-off series called Biff to the Future which explores uh, the timeline of what happened when Biff got the sports almanac in 1955 uh, and how he uh, took over Hill Valley and his ultimate demise. So 
you know, you'll see my name on every one of those issues as a story consultant or co-story writer, because, hey, you know, <laughs> these characters are my children and uh, I'm very protective of them. And I want to make sure that these things turned out true to the Back to the Future universe. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we're big fans of, I think, building out the universe you created versus just adding on to it over and over and over endlessly. Um, this really enhances the movies that we have versus trying to feel like a, a trying to just keep it going for the sake right. of extending it for whatever reasons. So the 4K set has over an hour of new bonus content and a lot of it that's never been seen before. And so we just wanted to ask, what about this 35th anniversary set, in your opinion, makes it really great for fans? Like, what is it that you love about it? Well, first of all, if you have a 4K system, you're going to see uh, image quality on the movies uh, that's pretty damned amazing. Way better than it looked in the theaters. Dean Cundy, the director of photography, and I reviewed and worked with the, with the folks at Universal in these transfers to make sure that the color correction was perfect, that the densities were all great. So we're very proud of how they look. We're very proud of how they sound because they're new mixes. We do a little um, dialogue audio panning to make the movie sound a little bit more contemporary the way that we mix movies today. And then the new special features, you get a good look at the, uh, at the new Back to the Future, the musical. Uh, which I'm very excited about. I gotta just tell you guys, it is absolutely fantastic. It's scheduled to, uh, be reborn again in London in May, barring complications from COVID. But we ran the show for five weeks in Manchester in February and March, and the audience went berserk for it. It is absolutely fantastic. You will believe on stage that the DeLorean actually goes 88 miles per hour. Uh, the new songs are great. You'll hear a couple of those. So that's the feature that I'm the most excited about because it lets everybody know that yes, there is more Back to the Future in this new format in, in, uh, musical theater. And, um, uh, be patient and you'll, you'll get to experience that too. The, uh, could you survive Back to the Future is a lot of fun. It points out all the physics violations <laughs> that we did with great tongue in cheek. Because you'll just say, oh, that couldn't have happened. There couldn't have possibly been a speaker powerful enough to blow Marty McFly across Doc's lab. And that's right. <laughs> if it was that powerful to blow him across the lab, it uh, would have done serious physical injury to him. But, hey, it's a movie, right? I got to um, say, of all the things, Bob, and just for whoever made the decision to put that in there, I really respect the fact that you guys were willing to do that because I feel like so many filmmakers would – take issue with that and would be like, no, don't, don't talk about my movie. Don't try to prove it wrong. But for you guys to <laughs> lean into that and embrace it is really, really neat. It's yeah. a movie, right? It's time exactly. travel. Time yeah. travel isn't real. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sure. I mean, look, you watch the movie and you see Doc Brown, he connects the, he connects <laughs> the cable with lightning going through it. Duh. It's going to electrocute him, <laughs> but you don't care. It's a movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> and with all the things that have spun off, in the spirit of Back to the Future, from comic books to cartoons to video games to now a, a full-fledged musical, that says something about the respect of the franchise, that you can 
leave all that science stuff at the door, you don't have to take it seriously because of the fact that it's so beloved. You actually live in that world and have fun trying to figure that stuff out. So what if it's true or if it's not true? It's fun just to talk about underneath the whole idea of the story of of Marty and Doc. And I think that in and of itself is what makes the the whole Back to the Future entity so successful is the fact that people love it for what it is, not for what it isn't. Well, yes. And of course, the other thing that we do is that we set up our rules of science, mm-hmm. our rules of time travel, which is 1.21 gigawatts, 88 miles per hour. Right. And whether there's obviously no scientific basis to that, you know, why 88 miles an hour? It's easy to remember. That's the only, <laughs> that's why we chose it. It has nothing to do with anything. You know, people say, well, it's infinity on its, the infinity symbol on its side twice, right? Oh, okay. You want to believe that? Go for it. 88. Easy to remember. Nobody's going to accidentally drive 88. But as long as we don't violate those rules, you tell the audience these are the rules, don't violate them. They will go along for the ride. And that's fine. We give you all the science and all the history that you need to understand Back to the Future, which is where I think some time travel movies fall short, which is they assume that the audience knows a certain amount of history. If you watch a movie like The Final Countdown, which is an interesting movie, no question about it, that's the movie where they, uh, the, the guys go accidentally go back in time and they try to prevent Pearl Harbor. Well, you have to know something about Pearl Harbor. If you don't, it's not quite so interesting. Plus, you also know that Pearl Harbor actually happened, so they're going to fail. So dramatically, you've got a problem. Um, with Back to the Future, we change the life of the fictional McFly and Tannen families, but the rest of the world stays exactly the same. Ronald Reagan is president in 1985 when Marty leaves, and he's still president when Marty comes back. You know, everything else in the world is exactly the same. So I think that's one of the things that we did that helps the audience just, okay, we're in this world, we get it, and as long as the filmmakers don't betray our trust, uh, we're going to be okay. Yeah, that's a good decision. Well, as we like to do on most of our interviews, we always like to ask our guest if there is a movie that they have seen or that they've experienced that hits them emotionally in a way that no other film has. Our podcast centers around movies that make us feel something. And we were curious, is there a movie out there that you gravitate towards that really hits you in the feels more than than any other? Well, I would have to say that the first Godfather movie I can never stop watching that movie whenever whenever it's on TV, whenever I put it on. And what I love about The Godfather is that I saw it when it came out in 1972, and I was a college student. And when I saw it again, you know, I've watched it regularly ever since, but when I became a parent, I saw a whole nother subtext in that movie that I didn't get when I wasn't a parent. So the idea that there are movies like that that have these layers that are there that depend on your own personal experience uh, and they work on all these different levels 
that to me is, that signifies a great movie. That's awesome. And I could not disagree with you at all. It's such a iconic movie. It's one that I wish I'd seen in the theaters. I, perhaps I think Regal, I think they're re-releasing it uh, as part of this kind of re-entry into their theater. So I may get a chance to, um, to actually, check it out. I, I, I understand that for the uh, 50th anniversary coming up in 2022, uh, they are doing a 4K remaster. And uh, if you saw the documentary about how they restored the movie in the last set and you discover what bad shape the negative was in, it's amazing what they did. Yeah, and they're also, this December, Coppola is putting out a redo of part three, I believe, and then there's a dramatized making of the movie that got announced. It's going to star Jake Gyllenhaal and Oscar Isaac. And oh, yeah. make, it's gonna yeah, That's yeah. just wild. A, ma- a yeah. dramatized making of. <laughs> well, there's a lot of great stories about the making of that movie. Yeah. Well, Bob, thank you so much for sharing your stories about the making of this movie, Back to the Future, and the You're trilogy. Uh, we were excited and, and enjoyed talking with you, and we hope everybody will get out there and pick up this new 4K set and check it out. Okay, great. And also, for Back to the Future fans, the book, Back to the Future, The Ultimate Visual History, gets a new edition, hits the streets November 3rd, 16 more pages that cover... Uh, Back to the Future from 2015 to 2020. So if you don't already have that book, get the new edition because it's better. And it is the definitive book about the making of the trilogy. Awesome. Will do. Well, thanks again, Bob. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Phil, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places, and I'd love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. But be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.